right, welcome to the podcast. My name is John Lamberton, and I am here with Charles Favinsky. Charles is the co-founder, along with Kyle Glanville, of uh, Go Get Em Tiger Cafes in Los Angeles. And uh, we've known each other for about 10 years through coffee, uh, starting back at Intelligentsia. And uh, uh, Charles has been a friend and a mentor, and we've grown together, and I wanted to have this conversation about some coffee stuff. Uh, Charles is also a very prolific home cook uh, who has a lot of interesting projects going on, so I wanted to dive into some of that with him. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Cool. Um, well, to get started, uh, I was curious just what coffees you've been drinking lately and uh, how you've been brewing them. If you could you know, do a little shop talk with me, uh, that'd yeah, be great. Sure. Uh, I mean, I have been, so when the COVID stuff started uh, in our operations as a company changed dramatically, I purloined the uh, training GS3 for my home use. And uh, I, for the first time in my life, I've been pulling shots of espresso at home, uh, which has been really fun. So pretty much every morning I do a, sort of an ad hoc espresso QC. I taste the Minor Monuments, which is our milk espresso, as a shot. And then I uh, pull a single origin shot as well. And it's been really fun. Like it's been the most that I've been drinking espresso since I left uh, sort of day-to-day -day coffee shop work, uh, like barista shifts. And uh, yeah, I, I like, I'm, I'm a filter coffee person, kind of first and foremost. And I still, I say, I still drink uh, one to two cups of filter coffee a day. Uh, but having espressos has been really enjoyable. Uh, That's awesome. Overall, I'd say uh, the coffees that I'm drinking are probably a little bit darker than, like they kind of like keep getting darker and darker, which uh, coincides with just a personal interest that I have in developing like what quality is uh, with darker roasts. Uh, I came up in a sort of a coffee world that uh, had a lot of negative associations with roast and, and over time I've, I've reassessed those and like personally it's been a lot of fun to try to like ask myself or you know work with people here like Matthew and Zakia in uh, trying to figure out like what is a great full city roast or what is a great more developed roast. Do you find that uh, sort of promoting this uh, preference for darker roasts, do you think that uh, people you associate with have any sort of resistance or is everybody totally on board? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of resistance uh, just in general. I think people um, have, I mean, like culturally, like there's just been a lot of negative associations. I, I have had those uh, responses and I think I've been, um, you know, I've lost them over time. Uh, everybody's first reaction is that we, that doing that work is basically going in the wrong direction, I think, uh, initially, because there's this idea that uh, our jobs as specialty coffee professionals is to uh, highlight the inherent um, sort of uh, origin characteristics of the coffee. I think that that's something that's like uh, not just on the uh, barista end uh, or the roaster end, but also on the customer end. Like we've done a done an incredible job almost too good of a job uh messaging this and um you know the, the flip side is that like I, I, matthew uh our roaster at go get him tiger uh mentioned or head roaster at go get him tiger uh mentioned today that like how a coffee takes on roast is a is an origin characteristic and there is a lot of like gray area between imparting flavor from the roast, right? 
uh, and, um, you know, like still getting the qualities of the coffee out that uh, I think people have generally avoided just because uh, any sort of over roast flavor has been considered a, a defect or an error on the side of the roaster. Um, so yeah, so there's been a lot of, there's, I think there's always like a little bit of initial resistance, but you know, from our standpoint, like just in trying to develop uh, a wide variety of coffee flavors, coffee experiences, uh, it's, it's an integral part of that. And, you know, for me personally, as somebody who's done this journey in coffee, it's really exciting. It's fun to, to go into a different direction than what you were doing or what you believed 10 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I, I, what I've gotten out of it, I, I think is pretty wonderful. Um, a lot of great coffee experiences uh, that are more roast-centric. Now, is there, a, is there sort of a threshold where you feel like the roastiness becomes a thing that you are back to having an issue with? Like, uh, how, how far do you take this? I, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, I think that that's like a question that, uh, that's like a constant question that's being asked. Uh, I would say that one of the things that has changed in my mind is, um, well, I guess like in, with GMB and Go Get Em Tiger, there was always this very present uh, idea that we should center the work that we do on the customer's final experience, right? and not on, on sort of dogma before. And, and, and for the most part, we've done that to, I think, like meaningful successes. And, you know, the, the places where we've applied that are things that I'm proud of us doing. Uh, I just don't think that we ever fully did that for uh, roast uh, in this regard. So the shift that's happened is, I think, us thinking of it less as like a specific threshold of good and bad, and more like, what is the specific use? What is this experience that the customer is going to be having? And you know, what is the product that best suits that use? So it, it, would, it would have to be specific and titrated to whatever, uh, whatever that, that um, product, that experience that we're pushing for is. Mm -hmm. uh, now, going the other direction to the sort of lighter end of things, uh, can you tell me about any experiences that you've had that you feel like are the best version of that? Kind of, I, and this is this is one of the things that that uh, set me off in in sort of a different direction as far as like my personal preferences. I think that a lot of the copies that I enjoyed or that I liked that were like super light, I didn't actually enjoy drinking uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I would say that the best experiences I've had with light roasts have just been extraordinary green coffee. Uh, oftentimes, like those experiences are the first times that I can I've had that specific coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if you were to, you know, the, this to Kessie Geisha, right? Like, uh, coffee collectives, Kenny that they have every year is always like a really stellar light roasted coffee. Um, so, so yeah, there's, I've definitely had some really wonderful light roasted coffees over the years. I'd say that the experiences that I've had, uh, in general, uh, like the lighter you get is, um, is usually less wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that there was a period in, in sort of the larger culture of specialty coffee where most of the coffees were underdeveloped. Uh, it feels like we're sort of, we're out of that or we're moving in, in a different direction. Um, but there was like, uh, people were, were generally afraid to, to cross that sort of like assumed threshold of what's acceptable and uh, were instead like hedging on, on the side of, of underdeveloped. 
uh, flavors. And uh, that, that I think was overall a bummer, but it seems like things are changing. Now, uh, getting at under development, do you think that this uh, sort of lack of great experiences with lighter coffees is sort of a technical issue of people not effectively roasting very light, or uh, is this also just your preference? Because uh, I know it's it's very hard to fully develop something that is very light without sort of like you know baking it or creating these other roast problems. Yeah, I, I, you know I don't know. It's that's a really hard thing to to suss out because like what I would consider to be underdeveloped might be just the standard way of uh, like that might be the flavor spectrum that people want and expect. And I think it's reasonable for me to allow some some credence for that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I think that the, probably the best viewpoint of this is like, there are many categories of coffee flavor. There's many mm -hmm. categories of coffee experiences and the best professional line is uh, understanding more of them and being able to provide more of them or, you know, have empathy for that and understand the, the work that goes into it. And certainly like doing a great light roast is a part of that. Um, and there are, you know, a hundred percent, there's, there's roasters who are better and there are roasters who are, uh, you know, not as good, uh, or not as consistent. Uh, I would say that even among the great roasters that, that, uh, skew light, I think that the, the quality of the output is, uh, very contingent on what coffee is being roasted, but mm -hmm. that's true for any roaster. Um, and you know, any, any, anything in specialty coffee. So I, I don't think that that's even, you know, particularly damning. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I don't know. I like, I, I always, uh, appreciate coffee collective on that. Uh, that said, I am a hundred percent out of that game and have not tasted uh, a lot mm -hmm. of the new roasters that have come around. Uh, there was like a period, I think I, I, I definitely like, in the six years that GMD Go Get Em Tiger was a multi uh, roaster, I tasted, you know, hundreds of different roasters and had so many different experiences uh, that I I wouldn't say I got burnt out, but I got really really excited about the prospect of getting to dive into uh, you know our own process of roasting and sourcing and have appreciated that over the last three years, uh, maybe to the detriment of getting to taste other people's coffees. Well, I mean, hey, you're going deep on uh, your own sort of style, so that's great. Uh, so in talking to Matthew somewhat recently, uh, he was, you know, getting at what you were talking about with sort of like how each coffee has a degree of roast that it's sort of asking to be roasted uh, to. Uh, so do you think that this sort of more developed roasting applies to coffees across the board? Like, I mean, we've talked about like the beauties of like a full city Kenya or uh, you know, sort of like a more vibrant Ethiopia. You think that this is a nice thing to do across the board? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it, like at the very least, the current, as far as I'm aware, conception of what is an acceptable range of specialty roasting is too narrow, in my opinion. And having a, if you have an 88 point coffee, right, from Costa Rica, from Kenya, from Ethiopia, and you roast it, you know, something close to a full city, it's still going to be really good and still going to showcase a lot of the origin characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of the like pleasant, uh, exceptional origin characteristics. There'll still be an 88 point coffee, uh, just roasted darker, in my opinion. Um, 
now like how the edges change from coffee to coffee. Like if you were to say that some coffees have a, a, a sort of a larger tolerance and others have a more narrow one, I would buy it. But I would say in general, uh, our ideas of what's acceptable roasting for a specialty product is too narrow. I think that's fair. Um, cool. Uh, so recently we were talking and you were sort of getting at your appreciation for the second wave and I think of all the coffee professionals I know you probably have the most reverence for the second wave and I'm curious what the second wave means to you and so briefly I looked it up and uh, I saw a quote that was kind of funny and it said that second wave people are more passionate about the cafe than they are about the beans. Uh, do you think that's an adequate explanation or how do you describe the second wave? I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think the reverence comes first and foremost from just, I, I love coffee. I love coffee culture. Um, I, I, like, have appreciate all the people who have been a part of this. And it's great to have a history. And, like, when I came into coffee, um, starting with Intelligentsia in 2007, 2008, I, I think there was, like, this idea that we, this, like, idea that we were doing God's work. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we had it figured out and the people who came before did not have it figured out. Right. Like there's this focus on origin and the like, uh, you know, the clarity of like these distinct coffee flavors. And those other people just had comfy couches and were burning the shit out of the coffee. <laughs> and I, it, that disdain was was like really unfair. And it was a very condescending way to erase the work of a lot of people who came before. And the more that I saw that work and the more that I uh, heard stories and learned about it, it, it was like, oh wow, like A, like there's all of these flavors of coffee that don't really exist anymore, right? Like coffee, the product, what's being grown changes. And the only thing that we have to connect ourselves to those flavors that existed in specialty coffee 30 years ago is are these, the stories of people that we're like disregarding out of hand mm -hmm. um, and you know be like they weren't idiots like they were they were tasting the coffee as much as we we're tasting the coffee and in some cases more and, and uh, like the work that they were putting into it yielded results that we should heed in some regard um, I got a, I got a lot out of uh, a friend uh, Tian Wen and I uh, she's a really great uh, writer here in LA. And we were working on a zine. I was centered around 90s coffee. Uh, and I did a couple of interviews with people. Uh, and it was just like, it was a really wonderful thing. I, we've never released it. Maybe sometime in the future we will. But I did an interview with um, uh, Kevin Knox, who is had a blog called Coffee Contrarian. He worked for Starbucks and Allegro back in the day. And uh, I always sort of like read him as being somebody who hated this like third wave people. Like he, he hates us because, you know, we've got it figured out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. He's just a grumpy old man. And I talked to him and, and he had a really like clear viewpoint. And he was coming at it from the standpoint of like some of these coffees, like, like I thought he hated all light roasted coffee. Right. And had a, a vendetta. And was, he's like, Oh, these coffees are great. But, like some of them are great and some of them are just like screamingly underdeveloped and, and just like terrible and nobody is recognizing this. Right. Uh, and like, I can totally understand why he had 
this sort of feeling like he was he was calling out this this thing and nobody people were just disregarding him out of hand uh, like that would be infuriating. So so some of it comes from like I think like a, a realization that uh, the quality was there in a way that I, I wasn't giving it that credit. And I think, I think that was definitely on me. And I think it's, there's also like a larger cultural disregard for uh, the second wave. Um, and some of it is just, it's just like, I, I, I think that us having pride in our history is something that's meaningful and, and the ability to look back, right? Mm -hmm. Is something that's meaningful for specialty coffee to become better uh, in the long run. Very cool. Um, that brings me back to some earlier espresso drinking experiences. And I think uh, here in LA, there was definitely a phase of like very sour espressos, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, I sort of just deferred to the authority. And I was like, this is the best espresso. And looking back, it's like, I, I didn't really like recognize what my taste buds were telling me. Why do you think that uh, so many people in the coffee world are just willing to drink things that are kind of fundamentally not tasty, but uh, they recognize it as tasty. Like what attracts uh, coffee people to that? Well, I mean, there's there's people for whom that's like a, a good flavor, I guess. It's just not like a particular, particularly uh, appealing to a large group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I mean, I think it was the value of the story of the progress that was being made in the product, right? This idea that you know, the work that people are doing, growing coffee, you know, sourcing coffee, roasting coffee, that all, that they're doing all of this amazing work. And we should just accept that, you know, like this product is excellent for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the idea that, uh, that that process is something that can only, uh, oh, yeah, what was the line? Um, you know, once the, once the cherry is picked, quality can mm -hmm. only go down. Right, which, which is a really like good uh, sort of way of su summarizing the viewpoint that was prevalent uh, and that maybe to some extent still is. Um, I don't think that's a crazy idea, but like going on that line, like it's easy to be a barista in LA and be have a coffee, right, that was roasted and sourced by people with so much more experience and assume that your job is to um, like advocate for it instead of change it mm -hmm. um, like i don't you know like if you were to say like in 2020 do i think that that barista should be coming up with their own recipe right and like you know the the, the, the the outcome would be better if every single person was fiddling with it as much as possible probably not right like there has to be some level of discipline there has to be some level of a larger vision um i think we benefit in 2020 from having that vision be or those that vision be not just one monolithic one right but like starting to splinter into different viewpoints different uh, philosophies uh, or like those philosophies are becoming more acceptable and prevalent there's the specialty coffee in general feels like it's kind of splintering into different regions different ideas um, very quietly but it's great uh, from the second wave, are there any like sort of uh, figures that you found inspiration from, uh, like yeah. uh, people that you interviewed or uh, others? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, like people like Kevin Knox, uh, Peter G. I talked to, and he was really like, uh, you know, talking about coffee in the '90s was really 
eye-opening. Uh, George Howell, like there, it's a lot of it is the the people that we already respect, and uh, I think it's the you know there's loads of people that I probably don't know about that I would love to learn about uh, who did work in those times and have stories to tell. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think everyone's just around. It, I just think that there's not really at least in my generation, right? And I, I feel guilty with this as well. There just wasn't a level of reverence or respect paid to the people who did the work before us. Mm -hmm. And there was just a, just, just kind of a feeling that like we had a better thing, you know, than, than what our, uh, what the generation before did, which I, I guess is like how things work, but, um, we 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 could have we could have listened a little bit better. I, I think we would have learned a lot if we had sort of. Uh, it would have been a different trajectory, and we would have had different experiences if we had uh, been less uh, dismissive. Uh, what would you say? Like one or two things that you would really love to see preserved from that era would be. Well, I mean, I think the biggest the biggest one that I I've tried to grapple with is just. Uh, sort of a larger roast level or like a, a wider variance in, in what roasts are available. Like something that um, feels really clear from talking to like people who consume coffee and buy coffee is that they're the single biggest thing that they focus on is roast level, right? Like just in, in how they self-define their preferences. And, you know, for 10 years as a coffee professional, I refused to talk about it, right? Like even even describing something as uh, in in terms of like the roast level was something that was that was like a binary good or bad, right? It wasn't something that could be uh, adjusted or changed. Um, so yeah, as far as like things from the second wave, I mean, saying it's from the second wave might not even be fair because there's people in the third wave who were doing that too, and I don't want to mm -hmm. like dismiss somebody and pretend that like just because I had this realization at this point, and this was how my professional development went, that I'm like somehow, uh, you know, in a vacuum or like that nobody else was ahead or around me uh, at the same time. So yeah, um, second wave, like roast level, I, I, I think that that being a more prominent thing was, was totally reasonable. Um, yeah, uh, I think that there's like a little bit of, a uh, just like different preparation styles, right? Um, like I want to bring back the super short shots, right? Or I don't, I don't, I personally don't like, don't love the super ristretto shots, but I kind of like the places that still do them. Like from a coffee um, drinker perspective, it's exciting to walk into a place and see uh, people brewing very different coffees right in roast style and origin in a very different way uh so there are like certain types of like cafe preparation styles that i think are are pretty worthwhile keeping around and uh, i'm grateful for the people who still uh you know i'm grateful for the vivaches of the world that still pull shots the way they do mm -hmm. even though it's yeah, not like my favorite and I suppose those those darker roasts are probably better suited to the shorter shots. Um, do you feel a need to preserve but, and but, but all that stuff's hard. Like I don't like we've we've tried that. Like mm -hmm. one of the things that we do here is we'll like pick a style of coffee and try to reproduce it. And like to there's like 
one of the things that I, I definitely uh, was uh, full of it on was just like the work that goes into being able to like dial in that product. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, it's, it is not just as simply a matter of roasting darker. Um, it's, it's like, yeah, uh, it's, there's, there's, there's more to it. And, you know, I'm sure people out there have, have figured it out, but I have not. And you don't care one way, one way or another about uh, preserving cafe couches in terms of second wave things? Couches are great. I've heard some really terrible stories. Uh, I think uh, Elena Bia had, um, was talking about, he was barefoot, right? About somebody like reaching into the couch and pulling out, it was like underwear, like a large pair of underwear. Uh, and I remember hearing cafe couch stories from uh, Intelligentsia Broadway that would, uh, that would uh, you know make you make you very uncomfortable. So uh, yeah, no cafe comfy couches uh, you know are great to sit on, um, but when you when you know how the sausage is made, uh, they you know it becomes less appealing. But yeah, the, the, the whole idea of like this this cafe is a hangout, right? It's not just like this Scandinavian factory like clean factory of giving people to go coffee. Uh, yeah, I, I, th I think that stuff's great too. Cool. All right. Um, so we talked about some coffee history stuff. Um, I'd like to get into sort of the near future of coffee. So I was speaking to Scott Rayo recently, and uh, I was asking him where he saw uh, the future of coffee going. And he basically said sort of like community data collection is a big thing. And he referenced the community of people with decent machines and uh, like the forum where they're all sharing their data. And the other thing they brought up was automation. Uh, are there any things that you think are important as we move into the future? And can you speak about uh, data collection and automation with it? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, uh, data collection wise, like that's something that we've done a lot of work on here uh, and something that, that you was like a primary part of your job or is a primary part of your job that's all sort of on hold because of, uh, you know, it's an epidemic. Uh, but like the the stuff that we've done with basically like trying to quantify as much as possible all of the operations and equipment and calibration uh, of that equipment in the shops i think was like incredibly worth worthwhile um for those who are not the two of us uh basically <laughs> yeah. at, at tiger we do a, a weekly report for every shop that is like the calibration of every single machine the water TDS, um, the, the grinders, uh, extractions, like we, we take a bunch of information, put it into a report that self-generates uh, like a score and collects, and that information is collected over time. There's weekly reports, there's monthly reports, and it gives us an opportunity to see like how the burrs are aging, uh, what sort of changes are happening in the water supply, um, how if there's any trends in how extraction are going there's really like strange unique things that we've seen like one shop you know having uh its uh single origin espresso grinder extracting you know a point and a half higher than the mean mm -hmm. uh and it really is it's like given us this opportunity to have fundamentals right like to hold ourselves accountable for just like doing the fundamentals well and one of the things that we saw that was like really uh, like in in my, you know my time in coffee. One of the things I'm the proudest of like get to experience 
is just how much doing the fundamentals well, like getting like the extractions in the zone that we want them to, like having all of the pieces of equipment calibrated, manifested in taking our copy scores up, you know, a point. So we're instead of like having it be an you know 86 across the board, having it be an 87. Uh, or, you know, instead of an 85.5, an 86.5, and by our standards, you know, everyone, ha everyone has uh, different standards for that stuff. And like that, so, so like data collection and diligence in that regard, I think is really great. Uh, and I like, I love the work that we've done, that you've done in that regard. Um, I think data collection from uh, the larger perspective, right? I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical of. I think that there's limitations to crowdsourcing um, like what our standards, mm -hmm. uh, what standards are. Um, like you can, you can basically, I, and, and those things can be just as, just as easily be feedback loops for convincing yourself that the thing you're doing that's not ideal is ideal mm -hmm. uh, as they are actually sort of like dialing in something. And so it's a little bit risky that you might uh, be creating confusion for yourself if you aren't analyzing it correctly. Yeah, yeah. I, forgive me. I was I, somebody was asking for direction. I'm at the office, so um, no worries. The uh, yeah. So data collection, like I'm a little bit skeptical on it. it. Like the more data, the better. But like for the most part, like, and I think this goes for automation as well. And you know, we can jump into it. I think that there's like right now a tendency for people, I don't know, six or seven years ago, right? I would have said, and I think I did say that um, like smaller operations that are customer focused should use automation more. Mm -hmm. uh, and that automation is things like batch brewers, it's things like really like low level stuff, right? Like batch brewers, um, volumetric espresso, or you know, scales on the drip trays kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and seven years later, a lot of that stuff is kind of standard and there is like, there's a lot less noise in that and, and uh, applying that and in many cases, just sort of standard best practices. Uh, and I, I almost see like the opposite happening, which is smaller businesses focused too much on automation and too much on equipment. And there is a like, like from a, from a data collection perspective, like if you're a small cafe, you'll benefit more from just listening to your customers, right? Than having access to a huge amount of data. Like the huge mm -hmm. amount of data might be a little bit helpful, right? But if that's the thing that's driving your ship, instead of like a legitimate connection to a community of people, then you're missing out on something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, likewise, like something like an Uber milk is great. Right. Like you could say, like automation is going to change the way that we produce things. Right. But if you're a cafe, like all of the things that are being automated are at the same time, like the way that automation works is that you are able to, you know, efficiently do something like you, you can have a piece of equipment that does one job, but it's only going to be able to do that one job. So you can have, a, you know, a, a, maybe there's a milk dispenser that'll put out frothed milk. Right. But it's only going to be able to put out one type of frothed milk and the temperature uh, 
consistency is going to be something and there's going to be a whole level of upkeep and there's going to be work that's involved. And if you were a business that only did one type of milk at one type of temperature at one type of froth, it might be perfect. Right. Right. But if you're a cafe serving 500 people a day, who are going to have a huge varied uh, expectation. There is a machine that will do that, that already exists. And the, the needed upkeep is pretty small. Uh, or like the, the, the expectation of having somebody steam the milk on, a, on an espresso machine is like not humongous. So like, I don't, I don't see, like, I, I, I think it's completely possible that there will be huge changes in how cafes operate using automation, right? But in those opportunities, I see uh, like drawbacks and things that will actually actually constrict constrict the possibilities for cafes. And I think that there will be a, um, a, a, you know, like at this moment, I see just as much or more value in like focusing in a different direction of like, how do you listen to a community? How do you, how do you give a varied amount of things in a world where everything is being automated, right? Customers are going to see their options constricted. Right, they're going to be constantly put into different sort of tracks or channels that serve automation. So, if you're a community level business serving, being able to give a wide variety of things, being able to listen and and respond will become even more valuable. So, uh, I guess I'm not anti-automation, but I think that uh, I just think that those things like. Data collection, automation, they're gonna serve larger businesses, right? Uh, and they will serve customers to a certain extent. Uh, but specialty coffee is very much about like, it's about a, this smaller scale, right? It's smaller scale producers, smaller communities, uh, specific like community spaces. And I think that there's like a danger to investing too much in it, into it. And I think that there's a very good chance of losing sight of, of like what, what we're actually good at uh, in that. So it seems like you, you care a lot about measurement and sort of effectiveness, efficiency, um, and consistency, uh, probably at the top there. Um, but I mean, coffee is also still ex an experience. And so I was looking at automation and coffee today. Uh, I saw a quote that was basically, coffee is an experience, not a commodity. Uh, do you feel like that resonates with you or any? Uh, amendments to that yeah i think that's a, i think that's a reasonable summation of um at least one aspect of how i feel uh and like i you know the the thing that will never that will always be for a small business right more valuable than automation is the imagination of of what experience you can give to a customer mm -hmm. and the ability to pivot your operations to give that experience and automation does not allow that like if you if you found something that works and you want to you know make a hundred cafes, then automation will serve you. But if you're talking about you know one cafe or five cafes, then it's not the same. Uh, this also makes me think of like uh, when it comes to tax filing season and with the advent of stuff like TurboTax. You know, like yeah. it's so much like it's I when I get to tax season, it's like this is so easy to do this, and that's very freeing would you say the equivalent of that for you and coffee is something like using the volumetrics or like the scales in the machine like there isn't really much beyond that that's going to 
be helpful to cafe other than like having these systems in place for consistency uh yeah i mean I, I, I yeah that stuff is is great like i don't think that there's much value for me to go back to uh, a different style of pulling shots uh, mm -hmm. i don't want to do it you couldn't make me but uh, i i you know maybe going back to the second wave thing if that's how somebody wanted to live their life, I wouldn't wouldn't hold it against them, and I'd be interested to see what the what the uh, product that they served was and the experience that they served was. Uh, but yeah, like batch brewers, volumetric, all that stuff is is a boom. It's it's really wonderful, and it's allowed us to give experiences uh, in our cafes that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Uh, so I think this is a good uh, segue into home cooking. Uh, thinking back to the taxing you know maybe somebody gets some joy out of doing something manually maybe somebody gets some joy out of not using a scale and like uh painstakingly brewing uh 10v60s instead of one batch brew or something like that um and i feel like the last time we were talking about uh home cooking it seems like you know the process is a huge part of it for you uh can you talk about sort of like your home cooking worldview and your culinary worldview sure uh, so at home, my wife and I uh, cook pretty much everything uh, from scratch. We do, um, we have like, yeah, we make, we make everything. So uh, right now, especially with the coronavirus stuff, like not going to restaurants, we um, make like yogurt, cheese, dried meats, um, pickles, things like that. I'd say that like we're not, I'm not very culinary, right? Like I'm, I'm never focused on uh, final dishes and putting things together. Uh, my wife, Natalie definitely is. And that's like something that she's great at. Uh, mm -hmm. But for me, it's always like, I want to learn how to make cheese. I want to learn how to make tofu. Uh, I want to learn how to make a prosciutto and uh, jumping into those projects has been, has been a joy. And, you know, like something that we've talked about in the past is um, the idea that like the, the most valuable thing that we can do is, is sort of train better consumption habits, especially in a world where like we're just being inundated with these calls to consume, 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 consume. Mm -hmm. And um, probably the most uh, like meaningful change that I've made in my own life is, is cooking at home and learning how to like create a sustainable rhythm of consuming food, preparing and consuming food, uh, at home, and healthier, happier, get incredible joy from just going home and, and making cooking part of my life. But with something with like tofu, um, mm -hmm. it seems like you know the the process of making it is a lot more involved than just buying a a very well priced block of tofu. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, is there some sort of like uh, wisdom that you extract from that process that? informs the rest of your cooking or like uh why do you feel the need to make your own tofu <laughs> uh well I, because i get personal joy from figuring out how things work like it's a dumb thing but just sort of recognizing the corollary between uh tofu making and cheese making right the idea of like separating curds and whey and like uh you know taking the solids and pressing them uh is something that i like i am happier knowing that and seeing the world through slightly wiser uh, glasses uh, because I got to put the work into the process and learning the process. So for me, it's, it's just a personal joy from understanding how things are made 
and just getting to uh, learn it by jumping into it. Uh, there's also like, there's something about, there's something about the experience um, of like consuming something that you have this connection to that for me is really valuable. Um, tofu is an interesting one. Like it's not cheaper to make it yourself. It's not dramatically better to make it yourself, uh, but it's fun and it's great. I think like at first when you're doing projects, they are uh, maybe like, it's like, oh, I'm gonna take three hours and I'm gonna do this. And it's gonna be like this mountain I have to climb. But eventually you just get to the point where you're always cooking when you're home. Like you get home and you start putting things on and it, get, it gets kind of brought into the rhythm of your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the things that it's supplanting are pretty meaningless, right? Like I'm not watching TV, I'm not watching like Netflix shows anymore. I'm not, uh, you know, like playing as many video games or, you know, wasting time on, on Twitter or whatever people do. Like you just spend more time in the kitchen. It's something that you can do with the people that you love and the people in your life. You know, I have a four-year-old daughter, so it's something that she can be a part of. And uh, yeah, and that's just, this is wonderful. And I suppose in terms of like the uh, the sensory experience, there's a whole, you know, aromatic element that you miss if you're getting delivery food where you don't smell it being cooked and you don't have the whole sort of like, you know, maybe like making yourself salivate in advance. Uh, so I found that, you know, like sometimes just cooking at home, I, I get full from like just the cooking process itself. Yeah, and, if you're doing uh, it right. Really, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so uh in terms of like the what you're doing at the commissary, there's a lot of focus on uh, sort of like diet, dietary restrictions. Uh, how how are you thinking about that uh, and trying to like, uh, yeah, I guess put things together that satisfy the needs from uh, different individuals? I mean, our, our dream is to find something that everybody can enjoy. And in LA, like there's a there's a premium on things that don't have gluten. There's a premium on things that are vegan um strangely like stuff that is vegan and gluten-free is not that attractive to anybody um <laughs> just kind of funny mm -hmm. um or that's just kind of what we've seen is that we don't get a, a huge response um but like you know i think for us like the best version of the thing that we can make is the thing that that hits like like both uh people who are generally underserved by what's out there and everybody else. So something like the almond macadamia milk is, was, was perfect because it was a thing where like the, the effort that we put in, you know, showed in the product and it was like great for people who felt that the non-dairy options were an afterthought. And it was great for people who consumed dairy too, who just wanted to try something different that was unique and specific to that product, right? It wasn't just like a poor simulacrum of the thing that they consume every day. So we're, we're always trying to catch uh, lightning in a bottle in that same way with, you know, the pastries and the other products that we do. Is there any sort of dietary framework that you've uh, taken affinity to just in terms of like creating items, whether or not you like eating them, but like anything that you found the creative process particularly inspiring? I, I mean, I think anything where you're not using flour and sugar and you're getting a product that's exciting is fun because like flour and sugar is like, is the, it's like the easy button for selling a product. 
like it's it's really goofy but if you if you look at sales like if you want to lower your costs and increase your sales like add more sugar that's why people do it like people will like the product it's a little bit i think it's a little bit different in la where there's a little bit more consciousness about that but not really right like that's sugar is the easiest way to do that and flour to to a certain extent as well so um like i've I have like found uh, sort of intellectual joy and um, sustenance in, in trying to find things that give that are valuable that are valuable or have value for both the customer and for us, but don't uh, rely on adding sugar and flour. Gotcha. That's very cool. Um, can you walk us through some of your uh, home cooking projects? Like you mentioned, you know, uh, aging meats and cheese and tofu. Uh, what are some of the biggest projects that you have going? Yeah, uh, right now, so um, right now we are um, we're making tofu. We got back on the kick of uh, making uh, yogurt and like, sour cream and things. And that's like trying to go back to uh, uh, regular cadence of making cheese at home, like pressed cheeses, aged and pressed cheeses. Mm -hmm. uh, I love cheese making. I don't think I have ever... Um, like of all of the different projects I've had, that's been the one that's been the most fulfilling. The product that I've gotten out of it has generally not been great. Like, I don't think I've ever made something that was anywhere near as good as the best cheeses that are out there, but like mm -hmm. the rhythm of it, the product itself, like everything about it, I, I, I just absolutely enjoy. Um, you know, like I, I, my daughter helps me stir the curds and, you know, things like that. And uh, so I, I, I absolutely love cheese making. And when I have free time, or like when I find myself with a big chunk of free time, that's something that I, I want to put into it or that I would like to do. Um, aging meats has been good. Uh, we did a prosciutto. It took a year and a half. Uh, and that was like, that kind of like was the pinnacle of, of that. Um, we've been sort of holding off recently, but uh, you know, with us being home more, like that's something that we've, we've put on the, uh, on the docket. Uh, something that's like a huge project that we've been preparing for is growing mushrooms at home. Um, there's a good amount of people that do that. And it seems like there's products out there that would make it possible with a little bit of like finagling like a, a space and getting a, a small amount of equipment. Um, but that's like from a sustainable standpoint, of like how can we uh, make our own food? That seems like a no brainer. Mm -hmm. uh, we started a garden, which is the first time we've done that. We moved from a uh, apartment in downtown to a neighborhood where we don't have a yard, but we have a, a big sort of like asphalt driveway that we can uh, put uh, raised beds in. So we've got one raised bed going right now, and like we've got radish greens popping up, and uh, that's been a really exciting project. So I, I think all of these things are kind of driving towards some, yeah, like trying to incorporate a like sustainable cycle of production of um, you know ingredients uh, for our kitchen, you know, like composting things like that. Uh, I would say that we're not like super we're going super hard on the permaculture stuff. It's it's definitely like one step at a time, mm -hmm. uh, but. It's great, uh, and like from the standpoint of, of what you know, thirty five. I'm not gonna go out to bars. I'm, I don't want to go out to restaurants. Like when we spend money, we spend money on projects like this, 
and uh, that's been extraordinarily valuable for us. Well, I think that's very admirable to sort of try to close your your loop of consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, what type of mushrooms are you trying to grow? Uh, like shiitakes or cremini or? It looks like it looks like the oyster mushrooms are, are probably the easiest. Um, I think it'd be cool to do reishi as somebody who incorporates that into sort of our medicine cabinet uh, as well. But uh, we'll probably start with oyster mushrooms uh, and maybe do try to do shiitakes. But uh, like, I'll, I'll start with what's what's the easiest. If it if it's successful, maybe I'll try to commission you to grow lion's mane for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's totally feasible. It doesn't seem to be super hard. Uh, I think the the hard ones are enoki because you have to um, create a uh, you have to change like the oxygen levels in the in the space. Interesting. Those are like the usually in plastic with like the little cute mushroom guy on it. Those are the ones that are long and thin. The long thin white ones. Okay, never mind. Um, okay, cool. Uh, well, I guess uh, we're getting up on an hour here. Uh, I, I was thinking back to this event that I did uh, for the book release of uh, Zach from Sprudge. I forget the book title, but uh, he said something about realizing that the purpose of life was about exploring new flavors. And uh, I think that both of us have a worldview that's a little bit more sort of nutritional and a little bit more functional. But can you talk about sort of like uh, interesting flavors that you've explored or how you feel about that uh, split between flavor and sustenance? Hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Like I'm not, uh, I think you, you, you nailed it. I'm not the sort of person who like gets super caught up in, in like the sensory stuff. Like it's exciting to tie a flavor to an idea, right. Or a time or a thing. And like, going back to the second wave thing, like I would, like people talk about how Kenya's, cops from Kenya just don't smell or taste the same, right? And that idea of like, I wish I could go back to 1992, right? And, and taste what a Kenya is, is really, you know, interesting for me. Um, and when I think about the flavors that we have, that, you know, like I associate with specific places or excellence in, in coffee in a specific place, like that's something that I, I connect to. But like from a purely sort of uh, sensory experience, that's not something that I get lost in. I always have to moor it to some idea or some like construct. So uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the person who, who uh, you know, like loves that. I, and, and certainly like if I tasted something that's unique, my, the first place I would go is like, oh, how could I reproduce this? Like, how could I, how, why does it taste like this? Like, what, what's the thing that, uh, you know, like, why does this shaman sheep winter sprout taste like, uh, you know, a kettle corn? Uh, like, that's the thing that I become focused on, not just the experience. Gotcha. So more so than just the, the qualitative, ex qualitative experience of tasting the flavors you're interested in, sort of the mechanics of why it works and... Um, so as somebody navigates through flavor space, uh, do you have any sort of like guidelines for how to uh, stay on the right course of tastiness? Hmm, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's everything is about the, uh, I think the most important thing is consumption habits, right? Consuming things like being more responsible in how you consume things. Uh, I think that like, that's been something that's been valuable for me, like trying to, you know, 
control how I consume both food and media. Uh, and I think it's, it's pretty clutch for, for this time. Um, you know, if you're, it's like, it's kind of like a thing, if you're brewing your own coffee at home, right, you're already winning, right? <laughs> Even before you jump into how you're brewing it or what specific beans they are, like just, just incorporating a process of preparation, that preparation into your consumption. It's just like, it's so incredibly valuable. So, um, like, I think that that's, that, that's first and foremost, the most important thing. And, and beyond there, uh, you know, for, for, I think us as professionals, it's about tying the, uh, being sort of centering on the, the outcome, right. Versus the process, uh, for like, you know, finding something that, that a customer would love for this specific experience that we want to show and like treating everything else as kind of the production for that. Uh, yeah, beyond those two things, like it's a big world. There's a lot of ways to do things. Um, I guess last question: uh, what what information have you been consuming lately? Uh, be it sort of aesthetic information or uh, you know reading or what's uh, what's been interesting to you lately? That's outside of food and coffee. There was a uh, like, I mean. The most interesting books I've read have been like handbooks or like uh, books about like cookbooks. The Stamets's, uh, Paul Stamets's um, book on mushroom cultivation, right? Even if I never cultivate mushrooms is really cool. It's like a joy to see all of that information organized in that way. Uh, there's a, a cheese making book by a person, Caldwell, um, last name Caldwell. It's like artisan cheese making at home or like, uh, mastering the art of cheese making at home or something like that. That's like the dream book that I, I, I just like, it is, it is so wonderful to, to read something where all of the information, like she, she puts all of the information in the clearest way possible. And even if I don't make cheese again, like just reading through that, I, I learned so much about what the process is and, and what it takes. And, and it's so specific, but the information is so clear that just like, just, I get joy from seeing how it's laid out. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm giving a yeah, clear sense of how cool and exciting my life is. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's been about the best stuff and the, and the most interesting stuff that I've been reading. Um, yeah, that's it. You're a nonfiction guy? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've become a nonfiction guy. I, every once in a while, I, like, I think I spent the majority of my life as a cheesy sci-fi uh, reader and um or like you know you know fantasy reader and i there are some like great works of literature that i enjoy quite a bit but as i've gotten older uh i'm mostly nonfiction. gotcha well i'm glad we're on the same team yeah cool well uh that's all i have anything else you want to say before we sign off no it's great thank you for having me yeah of course thanks for talking to me uh, right. i'll talk to you in the future bye Thank you.